Good to see those of you visiting this morning. Some familiar faces, good friends. Thank you so much for being here. A little over a week ago, my, one of my daughter-in-laws, Bethany, Jonathan's wife, gave me a little assignment. She said, I'd like for you to come up with ten thoughts on how to have a long and happy marriage. Uh, she says, I have a project I'm working on. Well, it's an awful, awful strange coincidence that she has a project when I have an anniversary coming up in a week or so. And so anyhow, I worked on that. And, uh, you know, a preacher doesn't do too hot if you just say ten sentences. I mean, you know, I, I had to turn it into sermon. And so I did that. And I want to share it with you today. So let's look to the Lord as we pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the institution of marriage, for children, for the family. We pray, Lord, that as we examine these points that you will work in our lives. And Lord, show us the way. Give confidence and help to those who may be hurting. Lord, give encouragement. Lord, reassure those who are working hard and yet have doubts and struggles. And Lord, just help us all to look into your word and carefully find there the particular instruction that you have for us in each of our individual needs and situations. We thank you and praise you for this time now, and we pray that you'd help us to focus on the subject at hand in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I said on the way here, when you have 12 points to a sermon plus one, you've got to get moving because you'll never get through 12 points in less than an hour. So we're going to move pretty quickly, but I want to start number one with this, and this is the condensed point. The condensed point is the foundation stone, the block, the presumption that I don't want to spend a lot of time preaching on this morning because it's so obvious you'd miss it if it were not your nose. And that is that in any marriage relationship, salvation and a living, active walk with the Lord Jesus Christ is absolutely essential. And I don't want anyone to think because we dwell on some of these other things that that's not important. That is probably the most important contribution to a long and happy marriage. Is that you are bound for heaven, that you are responsible to the Lord, that you love Him, you know Him, you talk to Him, you take your problems to Him, you recognize the blessings that come from Him, a living, vital relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. An active prayer life. Time spent in Scripture. Being filled with the Holy Spirit. Number one. Absolutely essential. And if I gave anything its proper emphasis, that's where I would preach all morning. But we're going to move on to some other points this morning and presume that most of you understand that, though we never can... Uh, overlook it and not emphasize it when we're thinking about something like this. Number two, live with a daily conscious awareness of the sovereignty of a holy, good, loving God. Nothing happens by accident. The issue in a marriage relationship when you and your spouse have a disagreement is not what your spouse said or what your spouse did to you, 
It's how you respond to your spouse. Because everything that happens around you, God is in control of. God is even in control of sin that comes into our, our spouse, our mate's life. And he, he uses it to teach us and instruct us and direct us through life. I suppose of all the things I have to say today, that that's been one of the most comforting ones to me, one of the ones that has encouraged me the most. It's a little theological, I have to grant you that. A little, it seems a little impersonal. But, and, and it, you know, it really wouldn't be very encouraging if our God were not a holy, loving, good God. If God were sovereign and he were wicked and hateful, that would certainly be a big problem. But our God isn't like that. He is loving. He is holy. In theology class and seminary, you spend quite a bit of time studying the attributes of God, and sometimes it seems like the more uh, impersonal and rigorous part of the study of theology, but it's very, very important to know who our God is. And that's the kind of God He is. We serve Him. He is in control. And actually, some of the later points are an application of that point. Uh, Romans 8.28 says it clearly, and you know it, of course, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. That's hard to take sometimes. That's really hard to take sometimes. It's hard to preach it sometimes. God has been so good to me and my family. We, we have gone through... Uh, two or three major illnesses in our children. And we face some illnesses with me now. And we've had some hardships and so forth, but not like a lot of people face. And yet I still say to you, God is a sovereign God. This afternoon, one of my grandsons is going to share some verses that are uh, my life verses. But if there are any other verses next in line... <laughs> You know, choosing a life verse out of the Bible, that, that's really asking you to do something. You know that? I, I want to draw your attention to chapter 8, uh, verse 31. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who in the world or anywhere else can be against us? He that's, listen, watch this now. He that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Now, what's that saying? It says, he that spared not his own son. Jesus Christ came, and the Father sent him to die on the cross to deliver us from our sin. Not only to allow us to go to heaven for eternity, but to deliver us from our sin in this life as we follow his principles and his power. And then be freed from sin totally in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what he did. He sent his son to deliver us from the curse of sin, from the hardships of the world. Now, if he was willing to send his son, and his son died such a horrible, cruel death on the cross of Calvary, in which the father turned his back on his own son, if he did all that to deliver us from the sin, the consequences of sin, the troubles and the problems of life and eternal salvation, if he did all that for him, then 
how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? In other words, if he's given us something, there's a good reason for it. There's a good reason for it. He would not have sacrificed his son to deliver us from something, and then we suffer from a part of the curse of sin or some problem like that. he, he, He sent Jesus to deliver us from those things. So if he allows us to face those things, he has a really good reason in what he's trying to do in our life. Number three, endeavor to please your husband, wife, even and in particular over yourself. But remember that your ultimate responsibility is to please the Lord. We, uh, I love my honey, and I, I like to see her happy. And whenever I can make a decision that will make her happy, uh, I like to do that. Sometimes I make decisions without careful consideration that don't make her happy, and I have to change them. But I like to make her happy whenever I can. But you know, there's sometimes when you have to make decisions that are not going to make your spouse happy. There are some times when you're going to spend a lot of time and invest a lot of prayer and so forth to try to please your mate, and then you just can't please him. And that's the time when you need to look to God and say, Look, Lord, I can't change this situation. I'm not going to bow to making a wrong decision. Uh, Lord, I'm going to take my stand in my marriage because that would be what would acknowledge you. That's what you would want. You know, when we get married, the Lord is still first. Not our spouse. The Lord is still first. And so we want to be careful that we don't get caught up in that cycle in some situations that we face in our life. And please our husband, please our wife, whenever we possibly can, And that's a good part of the time. But there are those times when we have to look to the Lord and make difficult decisions that don't bring a complete harmony in their solution. Number four, work hard and take time that's necessary to raise up godly children. It will save you grief the rest of your life and bring joy and fulfillment to your marriage. Never underestimate the wickedness in the world. And with a balancing trust in God, remember that wickedness can overtake and be active in your immediate family, extended family, church family, as well as friends and associates. Children are an important part of marriage. And we need to spend the time that's necessary to raise up a godly seed. Malachi 2.15, And did not he make one? Yet had he the residue of the Spirit, and wherefore one? That he might seek a godly seed. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. Your marriage relationship is reflected in how your children think and look at God. 
And there are a lot of dangers out there today. A lot of dangers. Uh, but there's a promise in the Bible. It says, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he'll not depart from it. The and there is not the wow of a typical and, simple and. It's, it's an even. Uh, it's saying essentially that to the degree that you train up your child right is the degree to which he will be a godly person when he grows up. Now, uh, we all make mistakes. It's, it's not a pass-fail system. All my children have defects that didn't need to be there if I would have trained it out of them. Oh, sorry, maybe some of them didn't know they had defects. I don't know. Uh, but we have a responsibility and we have a, a commission before God to work hard and be insightful, to talk among ourselves, husbands and wives. I, I'm so thrilled uh, this afternoon. I hope many or all of you can be here as my family, my children gather together to uh, celebrate our 50th wedding anniversary with us. What a joy. What a joy. But you know, it's just as much a, a burden to have children who are wayward and straying, that are not following the Lord, that brings a lot of conflict into a marriage. Yes, God can use it, but it's still tough. It's still hard. So when you're able and while they're moldable and when they're young, do your homework, line up your ducks, and raise up a godly seed, whatever it takes to do that. Now, I recognize in the world we live in, boy, it's a dangerous world. And uh, some preachers have thought and have criticized me for this, that I'm too, too strict about uh, allowing children to get off on, on their own. But I'm telling you, there are, I'll just put it straight to you, there are molesters all over the place. They're laying wait for your children. So you want to make them accountable and keep track of them and guard them. Much more than you maybe, much more than perhaps my parents ever had to do. I lived at 420 Indiana Avenue in Mishawaka, which is right near Merrifield Park. And I went to school at Bingham School, which is a city hall for Mishawaka now. And I walked to school and I walked home every day. Don't think I'd do that anymore. I used to get on the bus that went by my house on Indiana Avenue and ride to the South Bend YMCA for swim lessons. Don't think I'd do that anymore. There has to be a balance. I, that's why I said here, uh, with a balanced trust in God, you can't, you can't become phobic about it. You, you, don't, you don't need to, nor should you, live in constant fear. But establish your guidelines and be creative and be sure that you watch over. You, could, you can do a very good job of training up a child in the way he should go. But what I call a, a devastating, life-changing event can undermine an awful lot of hard work in raising up a child. And so, devote the time. It says in Proverbs 19.13, A foolish son is the calamity of his father. 
And then again in Proverbs 23, 24, the father of the righteous shall greatly rejoice, and he that begetteth a wise child shall have joy of him. Shall have joy of him. Wise children will bring tremendous joy into your marriage. So spend the time that's necessary to raise up a godly seed. Number five. Well, we're doing pretty good. Remember that God brought the two of you together, considering each of your strengths, weaknesses, talents, dispositions, personalities, and on and on and on and on. on. Because he has a special mission to accomplish in the life of your spouse that only you can fulfill. And a special mission to accomplish in his church and in the world that only the two of you together can fulfill. The Lord brings us together in our marriage relationships. Sometimes it's not clear that way. If you get married to somebody, God, God was involved. He was involved. He's sovereign, right? It's back to the sovereignty discussion again. We had, uh, I, I borrowed a yearbook from a friend down the road from us, who happens to be the individual that is, is, is responsible for getting my wife and I together. <clears throat> uh, back in 1971, 70, let's see, it would be, be the summer of seven, at 70, right? Uh, I was involved in a Bible group of young adults, college-age students, and there were not a lot of us, four or five of us, and we'd get together every week and study the Bible or something. <laughs> this this, this can go backwards further. Uh, I had come to a point in my college training in the, in the second semester of my first year of engineering school that I just felt devastated like I was never going to make it. And uh, I lived in a residence hall, and I went out one night to the band shell, which was right across the street from the residence hall on a hillside, I found a tree and cried my eyes out. And I turned to the Lord and I said, Lord, I need your help. And I, the words came back to me as if they were almost audible. Well, if you need my help, you better get into my word. So I went in and found out that I could substitute Bible as literature for my other general education courses at Purdue University. So I took the Bible as literature at Purdue University. <laughs> I, don't, I, I, I don't think that's the best way to get into God's Word. Uh, the man was a liberal. He'd written a book on the JEDP theory. But he loved to tell the stories of the Old Testament. Uh, he, he really did catch the spirit sometimes, but he had some clear prejudices in it as I look back on it now. When I finished the course, I wrote a term paper called The Biography of God based on uh, Old Testament theology, a study of what God was like based on Old Testament. And the, the paper was twice as long as the assignment. And uh, the, our, our church family here can understand that because that's usually the way my sermons are. And... 
I, he took it in, and I got it back, and I got an A on it, and he wrote a note on it. This seems to be a major interest for you. Well, anyway, so I, in this group of uh, church young people, was knowledgeable about the Bible. I, was, I wasn't really proud about it, but I, I was knowledgeable, and they often looked to me for lessons and so forth. Oh, I remember, you know... <laughs> You can have somebody try to pollute the Word of God, but the Word of God is the Word of God. And I go to those classes, and all the assignments in the classes, except for reading his book, were out of the Scriptures. And I remember in that little dorm room, with a bed here and a bed here and a desk here and a desk here and a closet there and a closet over here, and pacing the floor with my Bible reading from Isaiah. And I got so excited. I got all worked up reading Isaiah. Well, anyway, <clears throat> in this little group we had, there were two girls that were going to come home from college and do one of the lessons for us one night. And they were going to speak on the new morality. And uh, a young lady there who knew Rebecca was very nervous about this because she knew where it was going to go. This is the 1970s, okay? So she said to Rebecca, she said, you know, could you maybe come over and bring some of your friends? So I have somebody that's knowledgeable about the Bible and things that can be part of this discussion. And she said, well, we need to check with our pastor. So they went to Pastor Hammond, who was a dyed-in-the-wool independent Baptist separatist. And he said, sure, <laughs> go over. That was the providence of God. And so they went. And sure enough... They started talking about the new morality as if it was something to strive for. And my wife, being who she is, sat there and didn't say a word. You believe that? <laughs> After the discussion had gone on for a little while, she said, you know, I think we need to get back to basics. We need to define just exactly what a Christian is anyway. And I answered the question. And I got it right. And so I took notice of this young lady. She's a quite attractive young lady. And after the meeting was over, I called up this mutual, mutual friend and said, you know, do you think she'd go out with me if, uh, if I ask her out? And she said, well, I don't know. I'll give you her phone number. You can ask her out. So I called her up and asked her out and go to movies on day. I asked her to go to movies. She says, I don't go to movies. And so we ended up going to a spaghetti dinner at her church. That was on August 21st, 1970. And on August 21st, 1971, we were married. In the fall months, as school began, and I was absent from the residence hall where I was supposed to be a counselor on weekends quite often, uh, her folks told her about the third time I came to the door, that guy's looking for a wife. And I was. And I got her. Uh, but, you know, God gave her to me, and God gave me to her because there are certain things about each of us that he knew would refine us into what he wanted each of us to be. Do you know what that means? That means when you come into a conflict with your spouse over some issue or some matter... Lights go on. Whoop! That's why I'm married to them. 
I'm supposed to help them solve that problem. Do you get the difference between that and how the world handles it? Oh, that's a horrible thing. I, I can't put up any longer. I'm going to divorce them and get out of here. No, it's so helpful when you realize that you both have faults, you both have irritating problems, and when that happens, you say, wait, that's why God brought us together is to solve that problem in your life. And I'm going to do everything I can not to walk away, but everything may, may be tough, may cause some conflict, but I'm going to do everything I can praying, you know, living vital relationship with the Lord to help you with that problem. You may not you don't necessarily say that. And then the problem becomes a motivation to spirituality instead of a divisive issue to separate you. Oh, what a whole different outlook on life. What a whole different outlook on life. Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing and obtaineth favor of the Lord. Houses and riches are the inheritance of fathers and a prudent wife is from the Lord. I had to laugh the other day. I think it had to do with driving. We were going somewhere. And we were late, I think. Very unusual for us. <laughs> I think I was driving. And she said, you drive like a Wesco. I said, really? After being married 50 years, you can remember how Wesco's drive and how Walter's drive, and I drive like a Wesco. You should see her drive. I said, why are you changing lanes? I want to get on the inside lane, the shorter distance. They could get on the inside lane, save a couple seconds. <sighs> it's fun to ride with her, though. See, I haven't ridden with her all my life, but now I get in bad condition sometimes, and I have to ride in the, in the passenger seat in the front seat. That's a different experience, <laughs> not being in control of the car. And that's not just to say something about her driving. That's just to say something about how you feel when you're not in control of the car. But God brought you together because only you can meet the needs of that person to make them into what Christ wants them to be. And only the two of you can contribute to the local church to make it into what it ought to be. Isn't that what it's all about? Uh, building the fitly framed spiritual gifts, contributing to the body of Christ. That's the whole idea. Number six, make the local church a central part of your family life with zeal while being careful not to allow your children to be influenced by negative peer pressure in the church or your family to be weakened by church over-programming. You won't hear that from too many pulpits. They don't tell you about that other part of it. Go to church. Well, let me say that. Uh, The church, it tells us in 1 Timothy 3.15, is the church of the living God. The church here, for some who may not be theologically educated, is not the building, it's you people as a group. And uh, you are the church. And God has 
made you, the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. No parachurch organization, no teacher, no school, no seminary, no Bible college, no program is the pillar and ground of the truth. The church is. That's where you go to look for truth. And when you go to the church and look for truth, of course, this is the standard you're using as you look for truth. The church is the pillar and ground for the truth. And you need to participate in it with zeal. John chapter 2, verse 17, the disciples were making observations of Jesus. They said, And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten thee up. We should serve in our local church with enthusiasm, with commitment, with responsibility. But don't let the church overprogram you to the point where you can't raise up a godly seed. And that has been one of the founding principles of what we have tried to do here is condense meetings, make de deacon meetings extremely short. Deacons, I don't hear you laughing. That's been a place where we failed. <laughs> uh, but condense things. So you're not out every night of the week on Saturday morning too. And that covers another point later on here that is also related. In that. Uh, the church is a pillar and ground of truth, and we should serve it with zeal. But there's no perfect church. And there's going to be some kind of a problem that, that could be there. Uh, but just be careful. The church that we attended before we came here for years and years and years had a very strong youth philosophy and so forth. And uh, there were some things there that, that we didn't see for our children. We didn't participate in them. And sometimes the children suffered for them because they earned awards that they were not able to uh, obtain because of how we felt about doing those sorts of things. They made sacrifices, worked hard, reached the goal, but didn't get the, the reward from the church. That's okay. That's okay. But don't let that sour you on the local church. The local church is still the center of truth. Don't let another teacher, another organization, uh, some school or anything else become more important in your life and in your family's life than your local church. Now, I've benefited tremendously over the years from what they call parachurch organizations. Organizations that are not the local church. But I've seen a lot of families who've gotten so involved in parachurch organization of one sort or another that they neglect or raise it above the teaching of their local church. And even though everything looked really good at the moment, now 10, 20 years later, the children are falling by the wayside and going the wrong direction. You say, why is that? And in a lot of the cases, the people did not stay loyal to their local church. They stayed more loyal to the parachurch organization. The local church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Treat it that way. Live that way.
Number seven, follow the following formula for good communication. I'm just going to read this text to you. Turn to it if you'd like. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 29 to 32. This is a familiar text that pastors almost always use in marriage counseling about communication. Communication is important. Here's what it says. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Think of that in your discussion with your husband or wife. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Uh, the McCullough family that my mother-in-law comes from is a lot of farmers. And I, I, they used to gather down at the end of the pavilion at the reunion and talk farming. And, and one of the things they said was this. When bad times come, if you can just keep from going into the hole and break even, you'll be way ahead when, the, when things revive because you can move forward and you won't have to make up for the hole you dug. You won't have to repay what you dug in the hole. The same is true in communications between your husband and wife. When you say the wrong things, and we have to, sometimes in our relationships we have to be honest and say things that hurt, say things we're going to disagree about, but when we hear like here, corrupt communication, that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. If it doesn't fit that category, then it, then it can dig a hole for you. And it makes it more difficult to reconcile and get back on track again because before you can do that, you have to fill the hole you made by your careless speech. If you can't say something good and edifying, that doesn't mean that it won't be criticism or that it may not hurt. You know, I, you have to be... But if you can't say something that, that you feel is of the Lord, then shut up! But don't clam up. And seek the Lord's face as how you can communicate the way these... these, these, these this is tremendous, tremendous section here. And I would add to that, be honest with your spouse. Always tell the truth. Always tell the truth. To make an application from counseling situations, when somebody comes to you with a problem as a pastor or anybody, if your friends come to you, after all, that's the way it's supposed to be. I mean, people don't always come to the pastor, they're supposed to come to the older women and older men and so forth. And they come to you with a problem. If they lie to you to put their point across for themselves or whatever, you'll never be able to get to the bottom of the story. It's the truth. 
because you got all the wrong assumptions, all the wrong impressions. I mean, it just totally destroys any possibility to work with someone in a counseling relationship if they don't tell you the truth. Now, obviously, they're going to have a side of it that is prejudiced from what they've experienced, okay? The counselor understands that. You understand that when they come to you. But to deliberately, knowingly lie is self-destruction. Tell the truth. When you're dealing with your mate and talking back and forth about issues in your lives, tell the truth. There can be no communication without the truth. Number eight, husbands love your wives with an agapao love. I broke this down into several different thoughts. First, daily make conscious sacrifices of your time, energy, preferences for her benefit. We so often apply Romans chapter 12, verse 1 to our relationship with the Lord. It says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. I want to suggest to you that when you get married, that applies to your marriage. You are presenting your body a living sacrifice for that spouse that you are now married to. I'm not placing the, the relationship over God, you don't understand. God's first. But this is essentially what you're doing. Isn't it? Romans chapter, uh, Ephesians chapter 5 doesn't it say that. It says, as Christ laid down his life for the church, so ought the husband to lay down his life for the wife. A living sacrifice. And so you consciously make sacrifices of your time, energy, preferences for her benefit. And the reverse as well. Secondly, remember this love commanded of the husband is a commitment of the will, not dependent on feelings or emotions. Now, a person is a fool, a parent is a fool, to try to get a child to marry someone that they don't have a good feeling about, at least, you know. My in-laws told my daughter, my wife one time, if you don't feel like you could go to bed with him, don't marry him. So, you know, that has its place. But when you get married, you're making an agapao commitment. An agapao commitment is a commitment to the other individual that you will act toward them and do toward them everything that's in their best interests according to the will of God. That's what you're promising. It's not a feeling of the emotions. It's a commitment of the will when you say, I love you. I remember that I didn't tell my wife I loved her when we were dating until I came to the point where we were virtually engaged. And then I told her, I love you. And that was a statement of my will. 
and of my emotions, by the way, but the kind of love that God calls on from a man in particular is the agapao kind of love. Ephesians 5, verse 25, Husbands, love, agapao, your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. Are you kidding me? That's a pretty big thing. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. That's certainly true. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth it and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. I say the Holy Spirit had a pretty good idea how to get to a man in that verse. Love her as you love yourself. That's agapao love. Walk circumspectly around other women. Keep your distance. Take counsel from your wife in terms of your relationships and being around other women. Uh, the, the, the situation today is just unbelievably difficult and uh, disastrous virtually because after World War II, with women moving in large ways into the workforce, we've got a mixed workforce of men and women working together in close proximity. Not only in close proximity, but on projects that, that put them together closely psychologically and emotionally. It's a very dangerous environment. Be sure you pay attention to it. Be sure you identify, be sure you identify the potential problems and maintain a distance with someone like that that you have to work on with a project. And then guard your eyes, men. Guard your eyes. And if you have a pornographic problem, get help. Some have found in their study that a pornography problem is as bad as a heroin problem. It's addictive. It's very difficult and virtually cannot be beat by yourself and it will kill you. If you have a pornography problem, get help. Proverbs 5.18 Let thy fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of thy youth. Proverbs 6.29 so he that goeth into his neighbor's wife, whosoever toucheth her shall not be innocent. In other words, there's going to be lifelong consequences. Ephesians 5.33, Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself. And the wife see that she reverence her husband. Well, a word to wives, number nine. Reverence your husband. Daily, consciously, do say something that shows your reverence for your husband. Strive to be your husband's confidant, best friend, counselor, and lover. Titus 2, verses 4 and 5 says this, Older women teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, 
to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Teach them to love their husbands. This, this, this is a great enigma of Scripture, and then again, it's not necessarily an enigma. The word for love there is not agapao. You will not find anywhere in Scripture where a woman is commanded to agapao love her husband, only phileo. And phileo is the kind of soulmate idea. Friendship, Philadelphia. That's what's commanded to her. Now, now, let me put that. Let me footnote that with, with another point. Th th this may sound funny, but this is really true now. This is really true. The Bible says, love your enemies, and it uses agapao. So when your husband or your wife becomes your enemy, you've got to love them agapao, whether you're a man or a woman. It all kind of works out. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And the last verse, the same is for the men. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, Agapao, as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. That's the key verse, I, I think, that uh, gives some clarity to the relationship. Number 10, forgive each other. Forgive each other and forget. Or you know what will happen? You'll become bitter. Bitterness is the failure to forgive gone over and over and over and over and over and over again to the point where it hinders your normal behavior and activity and energy and, 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 and mental good health and spiritual health because you go over and over and over and over and over because you won't forgive and you become bitter. Let all bitterness and wrath and evil seeking be put away from you. Remember we, we had that verse a moment ago. Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. And that's not a number that you're supposed to count out. That's a figure of speech for my hermeneutic students who have been studying with me, my, my grandchildren. That's a figure of speech that says always, forever. Ephesians 4.32, And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Colossians 3.13, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Hebrews 12.15, looking diligent, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. James 3.11, doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? You know what that verse is saying? If you're bitter about one thing, it'll turn you bitter about your whole, whole life. Ephesians 4.31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. 
Colossians 3.19, Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Number 11, keep romance in your marriage. That's why there's one book of the Bible that's in the Bible, and that's the Song of Solomon. Tremendous book on romance. I, I so enjoyed uh, when we, we had a lot of kids. We were in the midst of having a lot of kids. Uh, we get a babysitter, and Rebecca and I go out together for dinner and to be together. I found out later that she really wasn't, it wasn't really quite her idea of a date, especially since that's what we always did because I always thought that was what I wanted to do on a date. I was a little insensitive. She thought it'd be nice if we go shopping sometimes. <laughs> oh, I... <laughs> love her as you love yourself. I... Shopping. Whew. She's a very thorough shopper. And she gets good deals. But she doesn't miss one dress in the store. You know, I mean, you know how long it takes to go through all the dresses and so well, anyway. Keep romance in your marriage. Your bedchamber should have a good solid lock on it. You should spend time together. And you should enjoy your physical relationship. God intended it that way. He intended the physical relationship to be the capstone on a pyramid that, that begins with uh, determining God's will on the basis of principle and then has a next block, which is the phileo love of a friendship and then on the t and romance and so forth. And then the top pillar is the physical relationship. It's not the foundation, but it contributes to the structure and stability and beauty of the building. And so keep romance in your marriage. Number 12. Hey, I didn't even stick to 10, did I? Maintain a thankful spirit in every area of life for your spouse, for your children, for your church, etc., etc. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, And everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Colossians 3.15, And let the peace of God rule in your heart, to which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Colossians 3.17, And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Side note, this is why it's so important that you teach your children to be thankful. I don't think anybody can be a Christian and not be thankful. If, 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 if you understand the cross and what happened there, and you're not thankful, how could you possibly be saved? And that verse I read a minute ago, so if he spared not his own son, how would he not also give us all free gifts? How can we not be thankful for all that he gives us when we see what a price he paid to, to make it possible to give us that? Be thankful. Thankfulness will determine. Thankful, thankfulness is a thermometer that will tell you what your spiritual level is. If a person stops being thankful, watch out. They're walking away from God, not toward Him. Thankfulness, so important. 
People in our society today are looking for someone else to blame instead of someone to be thankful for, for what they do have that's good and honoring and helpful. Be ye thankful. Twelve plus one. Here's the last one. Honor your father and mother. Honor your father-in-law and mother-in-law. Now, most people don't include that in this type of a message because it says we're supposed to leave them. And that's true. Roles change at marriage. Roles change at marriage. Relationships between parents and children and so forth change. It does say in Genesis 2.24, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Your first loyalty is to your wife. But that doesn't negate that you should still have a kind of loyalty toward your parents and your parents-in-law. It's a real blessing. It's a real blessing. Roles change at marriage, but maintain or regain a meaningful relationship with your parents and parents-in-law. Teach your children to honor their grandparents. And when approaching 50 years of marriage and beyond, and you are grandparents, they will honor you. I, a lot of my kids, when they come to my house, or I'm at their house and I leave, uh, go, go tell Grandpa goodbye. Go give Grandpa a hug. Go give Grandpa a kiss. They're training their children to love their grandparents and appreciate them and recognize them and honor them. That's a very good thing. I think it's a very good thing to do. By the way, uh, different ones of my kids have taught uh, their, their young babies who aren't talking yet to say thank you. You know how you do that? There's a, a sign you know, like this. And so the baby can say thank you even before he can talk. That's, that's great. That's great. Uh, Teach them to love their grandparents. Honoring parents after marriage gives your children a sense of security and heritage that brings its returns to your marriage as well. Working out problems with your parents and parents-in-law will equip you for other life conflict resolution and be an example to your children. Footnote. You know, there's all kinds of different situations between families and in-laws and outlaws and all that. Sometimes you can do your best to try to make a relationship really good and there's something that keeps it from being really good. What do you do then? You always keep the door open. You always have a mindset that if you see some channel of reconciliation or you see them coming to you in reconciliation, that you'll be open and ready to receive it. You know, if we have a conflict with someone for a long period of time, we get so used to living with it that it can't happen that if they come to us for reconciliation, we don't want to accept it because there's too much risk there, too much unknown there. We're, we've adjusted to the abnormal. And we'd rather remain abnormal than do the work and take the chance to restore the relationship. Don't 
Don't close the door. And oh, above all, your children should still be taught to honor a grandparent, even though there may be some issues there. That if reconciliation does take place, when, and if it, you don't have to retrain a child that you've poisoned because you've taught them wrongly about honoring a grandparent. They already know that's important, and they already honor them. And yet as they grow older, they are taught and come to learn some of the realities of life that we sometimes face. 1 Timothy 5.4, But if any widow have children or nephews, let them learn first to show piety at home and to requite their parents for that is good and acceptable before God. Leviticus 19.32, Thou shalt rise up before the hoary head and honor the face of the old man and fear thy God. I am the Lord. <laughs> By the way, uh, when he says, I am at the Lord, at the end, you start shaking, right? It's easy for me to say, but, but it means more than this. Okay. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Whoso curses his father and his mother, his lamp shall be put out in obscure darkness. The end. What spoke to you from God's word? Think about it as we sing a hymn of invitation. You need to come and pray, come and pray. Do business with God. Come, Lincoln. Lead us in a hymn.